So let's open with the word of prayer, and let's dig into the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We love you, Lord. We ask now as we go to your word that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. We pray that man would decrease, that your spirit would increase, that you would be glorified. Again, I thank you for anybody who's new here today. I pray they would feel welcomed and loved. And Lord, I pray that you would meet us here. You know what's going on in every person's life. And so as we look at some heavy subjects this morning, Lord, we're so thankful for your grace. We ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. So Revelation is not a hard book to understand. If you're new here, I do this outline every week because I want people to understand it. There's an outline for the book of Revelation in chapter 1, verse 18, 19, where it says, the book reveals the things which were, the things which are, and the things which are to come. The word revelation, means, the word is apocalypsis. It's the unveiling. It's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It's the only book in the Bible that has a written promise. It's true of all books. But those who read this and follow it will be blessed. So the things which were, chapter 1, we see Jesus in heaven. So Jesus is no longer a baby in a manger, and he's not a savior on a cross. He's the King of kings, Lord of lords, almighty God, seated at the right hand of the Father, intercessing on your behalf, and he's coming back soon. Amen? Then we get to chapter 2 and 3, which the things which are. It's called the what age? The church age. So we see the church is mentioned 19 times in chapter 2 and chapter 3, the letters to the seven churches. And then we see the church mentioned no more through the book of Revelation till the very end when we come back with the Lord. In chapter 4, it's the things which are to come. So chapter 4 through 19 are future events that are being portrayed in the book of Revelation. And we know that in chapter 4, verse 1, John, who's having the vision on the island of Patmos, is called up. And the word is harpazo, but it's in Latin, it's rapturo, where we get the term for rapture. And from that point forward, he has a heavenly focus, and he begins in chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, where he's got to focus on heaven, and then he's focusing on the world and the things that are taking place. Chapter 12 through 14 are what are called the sign chapters. We've been looking at those for the last several weeks. Who's the woman? Okay, who's the child? Who's the dragon? And we see the first beast, it was who? The Antichrist. And the second beast is? The false prophet. Brett's paying attention, praise the Lord. So now as we come to chapter 14, we're going to continue where we left off last time. And I'm going to back up a couple of verses because here's a question I get all the time. And here's a question that some Christians don't understand. And here's a question that some, even pastors, are teaching contrary to the Word of God. And what we're going to talk about, if you have your outline, grab it. I titled message, Redemption or the Wrath of God. Choose one. Amen? If you're redeemed, you've been forgiven, chosen, adopted, accepted, redeemed, forgiven, enlightened, assured, you're going to heaven, you're born again, you're a new creation in Christ, and you have nothing to fear. If you do not know the Lord, you will face the wrath of God, either at the great white throne judgment, or if you're living near the great tribulation here. So God suffers long, but he won't suffer always. Our God's a God of love and grace and mercy, but there's going to come a point where his righteous judgment will come. And we will see that in this morning's text. So point number one there, we must not water down the truth about hell. Is hell a popular thing to talk about? People love it when you start talking about hell. They just all gather around, right? Let's all have a Coke and talk about it. People don't do that. 
When you talk about hell, when you say hellfire and brimstone, is that received in a good way or a bad way? What's the answer? So when someone says it, oh, are you a hellfire and brimstone preacher? Absolutely, because hellfire and brimstone are in chapter 14. Amen? So we teach what's in the Bible. Nothing less than a whole Bible makes a whole Christian. Now, why is he so graphic about hell? Because we need to know that while God is showing grace in the here and now, there is a time coming because he is holy that he must righteously judge sin and that anybody who rejects him will spend eternity in hell. Here's one of the things that's being taught. Oh, hell just is for a time and then you're just going to be annihilated. Or maybe it's for a hundred years or 10 years or a thousand years. Certainly God would not have somebody suffer in torment forever. And the people who say it almost act like they have more compassion than Almighty God does. Let me clue you in. God is more holy. God is more compassionate. God is more loving. And God is more gracious than everybody in this tent times a million. Amen? And so in his grace and in his mercy, he desires that none should perish, no, not one. But at the same time, we'll talk about why hell must be eternal. We'll go into detail on that. Point number two, this world, if you're visiting today, like, really? I came for this? thought we were going to talk about like seven steps to financial freedom or how to overcome your anger or beaver doesn't live anymore the series or how amazing I am so I can leave here just walking on clouds. Guess what? We teach the Bible. Can I get into that? And all of it. So when it's teaching about grace and mercy, we teach that. And when it's teaching about righteous judgment, we teach that. So this world will not escape the righteous judgment of God. You know, Jesus came the first time as a sower. He's coming back as a reaper. Sowing is when you plant it in the ground. Reaping is when you come back and you take out what is grown. And some of it will be fruit and some of it will be chaff. Some of it will be wheat and, and will, will bear fruit. And some of it will be gathered together and thrown in the fire. The wrath of God will be poured out on a rebellious and God-rejecting world. Here's what we need to understand. Every person that goes to hell will have rejected Jesus Christ. He, they will have been offered numerous times in their lifetime an opportunity to know the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Salvation is offered universally. It must be accepted individually. God has no grandchildren. You don't get to heaven because of your parents love Jesus. You don't get to heaven because you went to church. You don't get to heaven because you read your Bible. Those are all good things. But salvation comes when we recognize that we are sinners, we confess our sin, we repent, we turn away, we make a conscious choice to turn and surrender our lives fully to the Lord, not just making him Savior, but the Lord of our lives. And when we do so, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, and we have the promise of heaven. For those who reject the Lord, righteous judgment is coming. For those who know the Lord, the righteous judgment was taken care of on the cross of Calvary. Amen? So because he suffered, we don't have to. He suffered as if he lived your life, so you could be rewarded as if you lived his. That's the God that we serve. So the two points here, we're going to see two harvests. First, the wheat harvest. And this is going to be, if you were here at the beginning of Revelation, remember there was a scroll in heaven. Bonus points, because this was like four months ago. What is the scroll? It's the what? Title deed of birth. Praise the Lord. Some of you guys pay attention. I like that. It's a title deed of birth. And remember, no one could open it. Who opened the scroll? Jesus, Jesus did. 
So as the scroll has been opened, we had the seal judgments, and now we're going to see the seventh seal. We're going to see the bowl judgments, and they're going to take place in the next few chapters. So what he's going to do in this morning's chapter is he's going to tell us what's about to happen. We're going to see the judgment of God, and then in chapter 16, specifically, we'll see the seven bowl judgments poured out. So the pouring out of bold judgments. Who wants to be here for this? Loathsome sores all over your body, the death of all of ocean life, springs and rivers, water turning to blood, intensifying of the world's heat, and we're getting closer, scorches people, painful darkness, drying up the Euphrates River, and the most powerful earthquake in all of human history. Those are all things that will take place in the seven bold judgments. Now, What's interesting about that is that as believers, we are so thankful we won't endure that, but what is that really a picture of? When you think of darkness, torment, heat, no water, loathsome sores, what does that sound like? It's hell. So literally, it's hell on earth with still one more opportunity to be saved. Why is there a seven-year tribulation period? It's an opportunity, one last opportunity, after the church is raptured, for people on earth to still surrender their lives to Jesus Christ. And we know, we looked at the 144,000, and we see that God's gonna have witnesses on the planet, even though the church is gone, and literally millions will get saved during that time. And then the second reaping, in verses 17 to 20, is the grapes of wrath. You didn't know, you thought that was a movie, right? Well, the grapes of wrath is in the Bible and it talks about the wrath of God and it talks about these grapes being crushed and it's a picture of the blood that will be shed during Armageddon. If you're going to Israel with us in January, there's a place called Har Magiro and it's Armageddon and you're up on Mount Carmel when we teach about Elijah calling fire down from the sky and you look down on this massive basin that seems to go forever in both directions. And there can be no more perfect place for a battle on this planet than Armageddon, Armageddon in Israel. And this battle will take place. And when it does, God wins. Amen? And the righteous judgment of God will come. All right. So let's begin there looking at redemption or the wrath of God. Let's begin by looking at the fact that we must not water down the truth about hell. Why is it important that we talk about hell? Because people need to know that rejecting God comes with consequences. Amen? And there was an old video when I was a youth pastor. I was a youth pastor for 15 years, which meant I ministered to high schoolers on purpose. And I love them. But there's an old video. It's really, it's really cheesy, and they made it for like $1.50. But this video has four kids in a car, They get in a car accident, and then they're standing before the Lord, and two of them are being ushered into heaven, and the other two are being drug off into hell. And the ones that are being drug off into hell scream to their friends, why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you tell us? And now it's too late. Guys, we want to warn people about hell before they have to experience it. Amen? And we as believers should contemplate hell from time to time just to recognize how incredibly gracious our God is because we deserve to go there and by his grace, we're not going. Amen? So 
It says in verse 9, I'm going to go look at verse 9 through 11 here. Let's read it. The third angel followed them and said, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives the mark on his forehead and on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of holy angels and the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment ascends for a few years. Is that what it says? What does it say? Forever and ever. Eternal torment, the word that literally means into the ages of ages. Now, I'm not excited about people being tormented for eternity, but God is smarter than me. And what it does is it, it get, puts a burden in my heart to see people saved. I don't know about you guys. So I went to the grocery store the other day. There was a woman in the parking lot. I saw her walking and I started tearing up because I thought, I wonder if she's going to heaven. I wonder if she knows the Lord. I wonder if she knows where she'll spend eternity if she doesn't know the Lord. You know, every believer this side of heaven should be burdened for every unbeliever this side of hell. Amen. And guys, we don't want to keep it to ourselves. The thing the enemy wants to do is silence you. And so here's what we understand about hell. The torment is eternal. A lost world questions the love of God. Anybody said to you, well, what kind of loving God would send people to hell and make them suffer for eternity? I don't, if that's the God that you worship, I want no part of it. I'd rather go to hell. But there's nothing more foolish than that. They'll also say, why would God send good people to hell? Well, here's the problem with that, with that question. There are no good people. Amen? The Bible says there's how many righteous? No, not one. So that means you. That means me. We're all sinners saved by grace. And so we all, how many deserve hell? Should we be happy we're not going, especially this morning in this heat? Can I get an amen to that? Praise God we're not going to hell. But you know what? There needs to be an understanding. A lost world wants to know why a loving God would send good people to a place of torment. And, they, and right off the bat, I say, there are no good people. Well, I'm a good person. Compared to who? Amen? Well, I'm no Osama bin Laden. I'm no Hitler. Nice bar you set for yourself, Sparky. <laughs> How are you doing compared to Jesus? Amen? If we, if we look at the world, we'll think we're good compared to other people, but... He alone is good. By the way, people are not sent to hell as much as they choose to go there. We are all hell bound and deserving of it because of our own sin, and our sin must be paid for. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. But our loving God, while we were yet sinners, sent his son Jesus to die in our place, to pay the price for our sins, a price that we could not pay. Our Savior paid the price not just for your sin, but the sin of mankind. So salvation is a free gift. And while offered universally, again, it must be accepted individually. And this is, it is a gift that God will force on no one. Everyone who goes to hell has made a choice to reject God. And God is going to give them what they ask for, what they plead for, what they desire. And so if their desire is hell, you know, God is an all-knowing, almighty, all-powerful God. But do you know that he will not force you he will not overtake your free will. You have free will. He will not take it from you. So you can freely worship him or you can freely rebel against him. So 
It's not a loving God sending good people to eternal torment, but a loving God sending his son to pay the price to offer to rescue sinful and wicked people that deserve to go to hell. They will recognize they are sinners, repent and confess, receive the gift of salvation, make Jesus not just their savior, but their Lord. And again, here's the other thing that concerns me. More and more pastors, I see them online. Well, you know, I know the character and the love of God and he's not going to send anybody. Some will say that he's not going to send anybody to hell, period. And others will say he's only going to send them there for a short time and then they will cease to exist. Show me a Bible verse for that. It doesn't exist. Amen? And what happens is we want to apologize for what the Word of God says. We want to water down what the Word of God says. We don't want to stand for the truth found in God's Word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by? It's the Word of God that transforms our lives. The Word of God is the authority, not our opinions. Amen? We're living in a time where everybody wants, you know, well, you got to adapt to the culture. No, we don't. The culture needs to adapt to God. Amen? The Bible says forever and ever. Why forever and ever? Well, because sin must be atoned for. So when they made sacrifices in the old covenant, how often did they make them? Every day, morning and night. And then they had other sacrifices on top of it. You know why? Because the sacrifice of being perfect doesn't last. So every day there had to be another sacrifice made and all of those sacrifices were pointing to the one who would go to the cross and say, Tetelestai, it is finished, paid in full. And that's why we don't make sacrifices anymore. But the point is, Jesus alone could pay the price for your sin, past, present, and future, redeem you, forgive you. Why? Because he's holy, he's perfect, and he's God. And he proved that he triumphed over it when he rose from the dead on the third day. Amen? So if either the Lord pays for your sin or you're going to. So if you are in hell paying for your sin, how long does it take for you to pay it all off? Eternity. It'll never happen. Why? Because you're sinful and, and your sacrifice won't save you. Only his sacrifice will. Now, why am I sharing this with you? Because people act like it's no big deal. If, if people think, well, if I give my life to God, I'll be in heaven. If I don't give my life to God, I'll just go in the ground and be annihilated and won't be a big deal. We are not telling them the truth. Amen? Luke 16, Lazarus and the rich man. You guys know that story? They both die. Lazarus was a beggar. He's in Abraham's bosom. He's in the presence of God in paradise. And the rich man is in a place of torment. He looks across the great gulf. He says to, the, to Lazarus, can you dip your finger in water and just put a little bit on my tongue? I'm suffering. And he can't. Why? Because sinful man cannot be in the presence of holy God. They cannot be in heaven. But what does the rich man say? Go back and tell my family I don't want them to come here. I believe that every person that is burning in hell right now, and it should break our hearts that they are there, if they could say anything to anybody, they would say, please go tell my family, I don't want them to come here. People act like hell, oh, I'm just going to get together with all my friends, we're going to party. No, you're not. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, pain forever, no breaks in hell, and no way out. Guys, this should grip our hearts and break our hearts, like the woman I saw at the grocery store. You know, what would happen to you if you died tonight? Do you know? 
We don't like to ask those questions because we're afraid of what men may say or we might not have the right answers. But I'll tell you what, when we get to heaven, do you think we're going to regret sharing our faith or we're going to regret not sharing our faith enough? What's the answer? We need to share it more. Amen? The imperfect person cannot make a perfect payment and it's why only Jesus can pay and that's why they will pay for eternity. This is why, again, those Old Old Testament sacrifices were made again and again and again. We need to put our faith in Jesus. Why? Hell is real. Hell is eternal suffering and torment. It's the price of justice. Hell never ends. No one in the Bible. Guess who taught the most about hell of anybody in the Bible? Who do you think? Jesus. Guess who was the second most? John the Apostle. The Apostle of love taught more about hell than anybody other than Jesus Christ. Do you know that Jesus talked more about hell than he did heaven? Why? Because he doesn't want anyone to go there. And guys, we should not, I pray that the word of God scares the hell out of you. Can I get an amen? Amen? Like, dude, there was this old track called This Was Your Life, and I gave it to a coworker. This was years ago. And he read it, and he literally called me up. He goes, bro, that track scared the hell out of me. Literally. I said, praise the Lord. Can I get an amen to that? So I know that I backtracked a little because we covered this a few weeks ago. But the reason that I wanted to, because I keep hearing that question, what kind of loving God would send people? You send yourself. You deserve to go. He desires that you not go. He offers the free gift of salvation so you don't have to go. But he will not force you to go to heaven. Now look what it says there at verse 13, and we'll move on to chapter, the, uh, the next verse. It said, I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. From now on, yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Here's the difference. Those who die without the Lord go to eternal torment. Those who die in the Lord go to eternal rest in the presence of Almighty God. Guys, eternity smoking or non-smoking, choose one, Amen. We want to be on the presence of Almighty God. Where you spend eternity is the most important decision you're going to make in this life. Amen? Having a relationship with the Lord, we need to not take that lightly. If you die in sin, eternal torment, die in the Lord, enter into His rest. Thank you, Lord. Amen? So, Point number one there, we must not water down the truth about hell. It's a real place. It's a place of torment. Many struggle with eternal torment. What kind of loving God? Guys, our God's a God of love and grace and mercy who would let us all go. Amen? And because he loves us, he was willing to redeem us. So let's pick up there in verse, the next point there is, this world will not escape the righteous judgment of God. When Jesus came the first time, he came as a servant. When he comes the second time, he's going to return as a sovereign king and a mighty warrior. The first time, he came in humility. The second time, he will come in majesty and splendor. The first time, he came as the son of man to seek and save that which was lost. And when it returns, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Jesus came the first time as a sower. He will come again this time as a reaper. The judgment introduced in these verses will take place during the worst time in human history. As we get to this verse, we're basically halfway through the tribulation. And so 
We see the, in the middle of the tribulation, the greatest judgment is about to come. And so the people are hopeful because imagine what's going to happen when, a, when, a, when, the, when all the Christians leave. And then when you have earthquakes and 120-pound hailstones falling from the sky and a third of the world's population dying in a single day, and then a fourth of the world's population dying. You saw what happened with COVID. What's going to happen when real stuff's coming? And people are going to be panicked. And that's how the Antichrist is going to rise to power. We saw that a few chapters ago. He's going to come in and unite all the people together with an answer, maybe for famine or whatever it may be. And then he's going to have the false prophet who's preaching his gospel and pointing people to him. And then they're going to command that you take the mark of the beast if you want to buy and sell. Or, and if you don't, you can be put to death. So as we come to this point, after during the Antichrist oppressive rule, demonic attacks, the terrifying and, and devastating judgments of God, people will be weary and hoping things are going to get better, but it's, a, it's about to get much worse. The day of the Lord judgment is about to fall on Satan, his demons, the Antichrist, all the wicked and unrepentant people in the world, and the judgment is de depicted in this passage as the reaping of the earth. And so we're going to take a look, again, this unprecedented holocaust, if you will, the full fury of the Lord Jesus will be unleashed and devastating judgment. Is our God a God of love, grace, and mercy? What's the answer? Yes. But is he not also a righteous judge? What's the answer? Yes. And I think sometimes we think he's either gracious or he's holy. He's either will allow everybody. I had a guy send me a letter. I get him all the time. A guy sends me a letter. I already knew it wasn't right because it said Reverend Dave Johnston. I, he never met me because, uh, you know, we revere only Jesus. Can I get an amen to that? But he sent me this letter. He could tell he sent it to probably every pastor in the country. And it basically just said that if you are not embracing woke politics, you are of the Antichrist. And then I start reading all, I read a little bit and then it's good for starting a fire. But the point is that what he was preaching was cheap grace, which means that we accept everybody the way they are. Now, is everybody welcome? What's the answer? I don't care what you're coming from, what you've done, where you are. You're all welcome here. Everyone will always be welcome. Someone's a Satan worshiper. They want to come to church. God bless you. I'm glad you're here. Can I get amen to that? That being said, you're welcome here, but we are not going to affirm or encourage the very thing that will send you to hell. Can I get an amen to that? We need to stand up and say, look, we love you enough to tell you the truth. We live in a time where it becomes cheap, cheap grace. Grace is freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. Amen? Apostle Paul wrote this in Romans. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who surpass the truth and righteousness. But because of their stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. Now, as we see the righteous judgment of God coming, it's twofold. It's God has been gracious and now he's bringing judgment. The seven bold judgments that we're going to look at first is still a chance to be saved. As all these judgments are coming, there's still an opportunity to turn and surrender to the Lord. But part of what's taking place as well is God bringing righteous judgment upon those who martyred and killed his people. It says this in 2 Thessalonians. Since... It is a righteous thing with God to repay the tribulation for those who trouble you, 
to give you who are troubled with us rest when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in a flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read that verse again. Who does he take vengeance on? Those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Guys, it's not enough to say you believe in God, the demons believe and tremble. Amen? True belief will produce a change in behavior. We're not saved by good works, but good works are fruit of salvation, amen? And as believers, we'll see sin different than we ever have before. It says, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. God suffers long, but he won't suffer always. We are, again, as we come to this place, the righteous judgment of God is getting close. We're going to see the details of these two reapings in the coming chapters in more detail. Let's begin looking at them, though. First, it says there, we're going to look at the wheat harvest, which is actually the pouring out of the bold judgment. Look at verse 14. Then I looked and behold. So remember, this is John in heaven seeing the vision. Some of it he saw in heaven, and now he's looking down on earth. And whenever you see him say, then I looked and behold, Something new is taking place in this vision. There's a new thing in his vision, and he has to stop and try to explain it. Often introduces a new important subject. What caught John's attention was a little white cloud. Look what it says. Behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? Do you know that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man more than anything else when he was on the earth? Why? Because he is fully God, but he was also fully man. He is the son of God, but he was also the son of man. Amen? Now, what's interesting, in Daniel 7, and by the way, as soon as we're done with Revelation, we would usually go back to Matthew. We're going to go through Daniel. We looked at Daniel 1 last week. We're going to go through the other 11 chapters after Revelation. But it says this in Daniel 7, and these are visions given to Daniel about the future. In my vision at night, I looked... And there was one before me, like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power, and all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Amen, amen, and amen. And he's talking about Jesus 700 years before he came to earth. And now we're fast forwarding 2,000 more years, and what John sees is what Daniel saw 2,700 years earlier. Our God is a God of order, and our God is in control, amen? So he notice here, sitting on the cloud was one like the Son of Man. Again, this is the Lord Jesus, Christ coming to establish his kingdom in fulfillment of Dan Daniel's prophecy. Now, John described Jesus in Revelation 1.13. He said this, and in the midst of the seven land stands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. The reaper is sitting as he waits for the proper time to begin reaping. In each of these harvests, there is a reaper, there is the crop becoming ripe, and then the reaping. You're going to see that in both of these. So the reaper, in this case, is the Son of Man. Who's that? It's Jesus. So it says there, of this reaper sitting as he waits, it says, having, it said in a cloud, one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown. Now, 
we see the vision of Jesus in heaven in chapter one, and it speaks of him. And the golden crown here, interestingly enough, in the original language is not diadem. Diadem is a crown for a king. And Jesus is the king of kings, and it would make sense if he had the crown of a king. But the word here is Stephanos, and it's literally the victor's crown. It's the one who wins the race. It's the one who wins the battle. So the crown upon the head of our Savior is a crown of triumph. So when he comes back, he's already the king of kings, but he's going to come back. And when that battle takes place, I've read the end of the book, our God wins. Amen? When you're, when you, by the way, when you watch anything today, it's kind of depressing. Amen? When you watch the news, it's just called the bad news. There's never any good news on there. And all this stuff, it's propaganda. And you watch it and you just think, what in the world? And just be reminded, God wins. God wins. They think they're winning. God wins. And we need to pray for them to be saved. We want to see them born again. So sitting on a cloud, a crown upon his head. And then it says, in his hand, a sharp sickle. Now, the word sickle is going to be used in both harvests, but the word's going to be different. In this case, a sharp sickle, most of you have probably seen one. It's got a, you know, like a, a bent knife or bent sword kind of thing at the end of it. It's super, super sharp. And then it's got a really long handle like a broomstick. And when people go out and harvest things like wheat, they're swinging it with both hands because it's really sharp on both sides. So this, you know, the sharp object, as it goes through, it just rips everything out of the ground. It takes all the wheat out. And so as they're walking through, nothing escapes it. It literally reaps everything in its path, and it takes it out from the ground up. And this is the kind of sickle Jesus has in his hand as he is returning in the clouds, and he is waiting for the order or the perfect time to move forward and start reaping. And what has to happen is the field needs to become ripe first. And so here's this picture of Jesus, again, preparing the picture of Jesus Christ mowing down his enemies like a harvester cutting wheat. Look at verse 15. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. This is the fourth angel just in chapter 14. There's going to be six altogether. Angels, uh, this angel is coming from heaven, and he's a messenger, and God does use angels. And the first three angels proclaim the judgment is coming. And the fourth, angels is going to, the fourth angel is going to bring the command to execute the judgment. He comes out of the temple, that's the heavenly temple, from before the throne of God. Look, it says in verse 16, the rest of verse 15, excuse me. It says there, who said on the cloud, thrust your sickle and reap. For the time has come for you to reap for the harvest of the earth is ripe. A harvest can be a time of judgment you f when you find out just what kind of stuff you've been growing. Sometimes you start to harvest and the fruit's rotten. Sometimes, you know, in the Bible, there's the parable of the separating of the wheat and the chaff. And it talks about in it that the wheat and the chaff grow up together. And the chaff looks a lot like the wheat until you start reaping. And once you start reaping, you start recognizing that's the wheat stored in the barn, heaven, 
That's the chaff, bundle it and throw it in the fire. And that's really a warning for people who are professing to be Christians and aren't. You know, we call them posers. Can I get an amen to that? When I was in high school, I went to two high schools that were on the beach. And you had all these surfer dudes. I wasn't a surfer guy. We had jocks and surfers. They'd never intermixed. I played football, baseball, but the surfers. But we had these guys called posers. And the, jo- the other surfers would go, dude, that's a poser, man. That guy's a poser. Totally, bro. He's got, the, he's got the surfboard. He's never been in the water in his life. And so the point was, he got the stickers on the car, the surfers, you know, the sex wax, all that nonsense, right? They got all these surfer stickers on their car. They wear the puka shells. They had the bleach blonde hair, and they'd never been in the water in their life. And they were called a poser. Well, there's a lot of Christians that got the Christian stickers on the car, might walk around with a Bible in their hand, but they don't know Jesus. Guys, coming to church doesn't save you. Coming to church, people who people who are saved get baptized, but baptism doesn't save you. People who, are, who know the Lord come to church, but going to church won't save you. And so what he's saying is, look, there's going to be a harvest. and There's going to be a separation of the wheat and the chaff. And Christianity is not a hope so. I want to say this to you this morning. If you hear and you hope you're going to heaven, we need to fix that today. Christianity is not a hope so, it's a no so. When you talk to people, you going to heaven? I hope so. I know they don't know the Lord. Amen? Because hope is, I'm resting and maybe I'll be good enough. Well, if God graves on a curve, maybe I'll get in. But guys, we're going to heaven. It's a no-so because Jesus said, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. You'll be saved. You're going to heaven. It's a promise. But when that harvest comes, there'll be some who say, I cast out demons in your name. I prophesied in your name. I did all these wonderful things in your name. And the Lord will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. So he sat on the cloud, thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. A harvest, again, can be a time of reaping both good and bad. And here is one of the most tragic and sobering statements in all of Scripture Simply without fanfare, it records the executing of divine judgment. It's just like he pulls out a sickle and he reaps. All this time we've been waiting, and when it comes, it happens quickly. Comes on a cloud, he begins to reap. He's going to come and bring righteous judgment upon the earth. And those who don't know him will be separated from him for all eternity. The frightening details of the judgment will unfold in Revelation 16 in two weeks, so be here for that. We'll see the, low, the loathsome sores, the death of all ocean life, uh, the world springs and rivers turning to blood, intensifying of heat, painful darkness, the drying up the Euphrates River, which will lead to a massive invasion from the kings of the east, and the most, most powerful earthquake in all of human history. So, judgment's coming. Where are you with the Lord? When the sickle is reaping the chaff, are you going to be reaped with it? Or will you already be in the presence of the Lord? In your walk, are you for real with Jesus? There's a warning here for playing. Now, we're not to just play church. You might see church as a place you come to learn how to be, live better lives. Church is uh, you know, a place where people actually come to be in contact with Almighty God. Guys, when you come here, we're coming here to meet Jesus, amen? We're coming here to be ministered to by the Holy Spirit. 
We're coming here because iron sharpens iron and it builds up the countenance of our friends. We come here for fellowship, for the word, for prayer, to enter into worship because he's worthy to be worshiped and to be praised. But so many people come to church because, well, it makes them feel good. Here's the reality. I've told you this before, and it's not going to be a problem today. But if you go to church, you should leave convicted. Amen? Knowing God involves opening your heart to God and allowing him into your life. And people have strange ideas of what will send them to hell. You know, again, I'm a straight shooter. The Catholic Church has different levels of sin. And then you can pay somebody out and get them out of purgatory and they're trapped there. So give money to the church and then we can pray for them or light a candle. Guys, nonsense. Can I get an amen to that? Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. It is appointed for man once to live and then to die and then the judgment. There, when, when we die, it will be too late. There is no purgatory. There are no second chances. You're going to close your eyes on earth and open them up in glory, or you're going to close your eyes on earth and open them up in torment. And there is nothing in between. Amen? I, I know that I'm being really direct about this. Why? Because I love every single one of you, and my prayer is that not one of you would spend eternity in hell. Amen? I don't, I, I just, I was, I was studying last night till the middle of the night, and I just started crying, thinking about if anybody here, and this is my heart, and God's, God's this, I hope it stokes you up like it's stoking me up, because when you think about hell, it should burden you for everybody you know that has rejected Jesus. Every believer this side of heaven should be burdened for every unbeliever this side of hell. 1 John 5.13 says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Let me say that again. 1 John 5.13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you may hope, but that you may know. If you're here today and you've never confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you've never surrendered your life to him, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. So we see the first, the wheat harvest, and we saw the pouring out of the seven bowl judgments. And now we're going to look at what I entitled the grapes of wrath. So the wrath of God is going to be poured out. And this judgment is actually what we again will call Armageddon. Do you know there'll be a great battle taking place on the earth? We will come back with Jesus we will be behind him. They will unite and turn to fight against the Lord. And I wonder who wins that program. Who's going to win that battle? Amen? And we're going to just be hanging out behind Jesus as he comes down and just, again, reaps the earth. And those who are fighting against him, those who have rebelled against him, those who shake their fists toward God. And isn't it amazing the grace of God. When you see people and how some people talk about the Lord, are you not surprised he doesn't just hit them with lightning? You ever seen that? I was wearing a Jesus shirt one time and a guy just walked up to me and, I want, and he said, blankety blank your Jesus, blank your Jesus, blank your Jesus. If you're real, hit me with See, he's not even real. Blank you, blank you. And I'm like, wow. I stood back a little just in case, but you know, I don't want to catch the debris. But like, but I'm like, wow, your heart is that hard. You will meet him one day. And I still pray for that guy. Every time, every once in a while, I'll think about him and pray for him. Guys, because people who are like that, they're deceived by the enemy, amen? They've bought the lie and they need to know the truth. That's why we need to speak the truth, but do it in love. I need to love that guy. Screaming at him, what is that gonna do? 
It's going to make it worse. As he's walking away, I just said, hey, bro, Lord loves you. Don't tell me that. I'm going to pray for you anyway. But do, you know what I mean? Just love on people, the love of Christ. So look what it says in verse 17. Then another angel came out from the temple, which is in heaven, also having a sharp sickle. So the first harvester is the Lord. Now this is going to be an angel. Again, this angel comes from heaven and he has a sharp sickle. This one is more for grapes. So it's not as long of a one. It's a shorter kind of almost like a knife where they would cut groups of grapes off in clusters. So the judgment here is the battle of Armageddon. Jesus not only one with a sharp sickle, the angel is equipped with a knife to harvest grapes. And the reaper in this vision is not the son of man, but an angel, the fifth one mentioned in chapter 14. And like the fourth angel, he came out of the temple in heaven. And like the son of man, Jesus has a sharp sickle in his hand as well. You know, angels have pray, played a prominent role in Revelation. We had the angels summoning the four horsemen early on, the one sounding the seven trumpets, the one defeating Satan and his demons, um, the one that will pour out the seven bold judgments, the one that will announce the battle of Armageddon in Revelation 19, and the ones that will bind Satan in Revelation 20. And the angel in this vision is the reaper, the son of man will be assisted by heavenly angels. Do you know the Bible says that sometimes we entertain angels unaware? Do you know that we fight a spiritual battle, not a temporal one? If we got a glimpse of what was going on around us, remember in the Bible, you know, Daniel's praying and then the prayer doesn't reach him for a certain amount of time. We see it other times because there was a battle taking place to get to him. It's a spiritual battle that we fight. But again, the angels are greater than the demons. Amen? The, and one angel killed 380,000 men in a battle in the Old Testament. Good to have angels on your side. Amen? And if God is for us, who can be against us? And so when it looks like the enemy is mounting up, when it looks like he's going to win the battle, God alone is enough, but he has angels as well. And when that battle takes place, we're coming back with them all and God is going to bring about justice. And then he is going to rule and reign on the throne for a thousand years, making a new heaven and a new earth. And we will rule and reign with them here, seeing what the world would be like with Jesus Christ on the throne. Amen? No more politics. Thank you, Jesus. Amen? No more social anything. All that nonsense is gone. God's on the throne. Now, here's the thing. He's going to be on the throne of the whole world, but he can be on the throne of your life right now. And he needs to be. Amen? Who's on the throne of your life? Is it you or is it the Lord? Look at verse 18. And another angel, here's the sixth angel, came out from the altar who had power over fire. And he cried out with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine and the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. Now, what's interesting is the angel has power over the fire. And it says he's coming from the temple. Well, the temple on earth is a model of the temple in heaven. And there was only one altar inside the temple that used fire. Who knows what it was? What was it? Altar of incense, right? You have, the you, have the you have the table of showbread, no fire. Um, you do have the golden lampstand, and that's basically lights, but one that actually has a fire that's burning and consuming. So his, his job was to keep the lanterns lit, the lantern lit, but also to keep the altar of incense burning. 
Now, the altar of incense in the Bible is a picture of what? Prayer. It's right outside the Holy of Holies, and the incense would pour into the holy place, and they kept it burning 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So this man who is coming from the throne is the one that has authority over the fire, and it's a, I believe it's a picture of the fact that this judgment, along with being God's righteous plan, was also his answering of the prayers of the martyrs. If you remember in the earlier chapter, remember when the martyrs were like, Lord, when are you going to bring vengeance? It's in chapter six. When are you going? When are you, Lord, when, when, please look what they've done. And they can, they have a vision of what's going on on earth, which is interesting by the way. And they're looking what's going on. They're like, Lord, when are you going to avenge us from what they did to us? And guess what? We pray in our time, God answers in his time, and his timing is perfect. Amen? So as this one with the fire in his hand, the one that tends to the fire in the temple, which is the light of the world and also the altar of incense, he comes back and he's telling him that the time has come. The altar of incense is a picture of the prayer of the saints. It's also a picture of what Jesus is doing for us right now as he is seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. So his appearance means that the time has come for those prayers to be answered. And again, we pray in our time. God answers in its perfect time. Here's that prayer of the martyrs. Let me just read it to you out of Revelation 6. It says, We opened the fifth seal. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they maintained. So they died because they spoke up for Jesus and were faithful to their calling. And you know what? I can think of nothing better than to surrender your life for the Lord. Amen? And most of us would say we'd be willing to do that. Well, if you're willing to die for the Lord, are you willing to live for him every day? And are you willing to pray for divine appointments? And are you willing to share your faith with people even when it's awkward? That's a lot easier than dying. Amen? Lord, help us. But notice what it says there. How long, O sovereign Lord, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe. And they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of the fellow servants or brothers and sisters were killed just as they had been. Here's what he's saying. Until the last person is saved, until the last person is martyred, it's not time yet. And so when we get frustrated, just remember that it's the grace of God and be thankful. Aren't you glad that God waited until you were saved? Amen. So there's still more people to be saved. It talks about in the fullness of the Gentiles is when the rapture will take place. And as I say here often, if you're here and you don't know the Lord, you might be the one we're waiting for. So let's be about it today. Amen. We're going to have agape feast in heaven. But notice he says, because her grapes are ripe. The word ripe there is different than the one in verse 15. It's something fully ripe. It's in its prime. The word ripe for the grain meant rotten. It had dried out. And so wheat, you want it to dry out. Grapes, you want them to be bursting with juice. Well, in this case, it's bursting with juice, but it's wickedness. We're going to see that it's a picture of blood. Look at verse 19. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the what? So what's a wine press? You put grapes, it's made out of concrete, and you stomp on the grapes until they make juice or wine. Now, by the way, does that make your wine pretty appetizing, knowing people's feet have been in there? 
Now, of course, most, most wine doesn't get done that way, I'm sure of it. But it's interesting that it's ta- the grapes of wrath, that's where the term comes from. These grapes were facing the wrath of God. Now, it's interesting because the wine press, again, is an area dug into the ground where grapes are trodden upon. And this ancient wine press near the garden tomb just outside of Jerusalem, which is interesting. And the wine press of the wrath of God. This is where we get the phrase, the phrase, the grapes of wrath. In 1861, a woman named Julia Ward Howe wrote a poem after visiting Abraham Lincoln at the White House having visited the Union Army camp at the Potomac River. And here's what the poem says. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vineyard where the grapes of wrath are stored. Has loosed the faithful lightning and a terrible swift sword. The truth is marching on. She was talking about God bringing righteous judgment upon what was taking place in the Civil War and the ungodly things that were taking place. But she references this, this harvest of the grapes, when the wrath of God is going to crush those grapes. And what's going to happen is it's not going to be grape juice, but it's really God is going to come, and when he pours out his wrath, he's not going to pour it out on grapes, he's going to pour it out on men and women who have rejected him. Notice what it says as we finish up here before we go to communion. It says in verse 20, and the winepress was trampled outside the city and the blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. From the Dead Sea to the top portion of Armageddon, it's about 180 miles. This many furlongs is about 180 miles. And it's on that place, Harmagido, where God is going to crush out, bring righteous judgment upon, and it's going to be such a bloody mess that the blood... Now, some have said this is hyperbole. I believe that the Bible is literal unless it can't be. But it says the blood will be running at the height of a horse's bridle. I don't know how tall that is. We've got a bunch of horse people in there. Probably three feet or something like that four feet, whatever that is, whatever that number is, where this is where the bit, the bridle of the horse is. Blood will be that deep, 180 miles long. That is God coming and bringing righteous judgment. Now, some of us will say that seems harsh. No, because he endured again and again and again. He showed grace again And again, he gave people every opportunity to be saved. God suffers long. He won't suffer always eventually. And don't take this this out of context, but eventually his grace is going to stop. What I mean by that is it's done. Judgment's coming. You're going to face the righteous judgment of God. And the result, when the angel swings the sickle, all the enemies of God who survive The bold judges will be gathered like grape clusters from the vine of the earth, flung into the winepress of the wrath of God, and the blood will be stomped on and splattering in every direction. And again, it's roughly 180 miles, three to four feet deep of blood that is flowing. And again, when you look at that, you think, wow, that's kind of a bloody mess. That that sounds almost out of control. What do you think it looked like on Passover Sunday? 
They were slaughtering animals nonstop. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, it was Passover. And on Passover, they would slaughter so many animals in Jerusalem, tens of thousands, that their blood would fill the brook Kidron. So when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and was being taken before Pilate, he walked across the brook Kidron that was flowing with the blood of lambs. The Lamb of God was walking over the blood of the lambs and he was going to the cross to fulfill all that blood that had been poured out for thousands of years. It was all pointing to Jesus because he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, amen? Holiness is a bloody mess. It requires a blood sacrifice for there to be forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sin. Guys, we can count on the Lord we will see the winepress imagery again when we get to Revelation 19. We see Jesus returning, and it says his robe is dipped in blood. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Isaiah foresaw this event and says the Messiah will come to Jerusalem from Edom across the Jordan River. Remember that when the Antichrist reveals his true self, the Jewish believers will flee from Jerusalem. They will head to the Jordan River to places like Petra and Basra, and the Antichrist will try to pursue the Jews, but he will be unable to reach them. It's these Jewish believers that Jesus comes to rescue. He is not done with Israel. Amen? We are pro-Israel because God is pro-Israel. His people will be persecuted and forsaken with no one to help them, so he will return and save them. It's the same for us. There may be none to help us. There is no one else who's going to save us from hell, but Jesus will come through because he and he alone can save us. Acts 4.12 says, nor is there salvation in any other name, for there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. So as we prepare for communion, We just talked about grapes being crushed and blood flowing. And communion should not be taken lightly. The Lord's Supper, the last, on the last day when Jesus was about to be crucified, he gathered together in the upper room with the apostles and other followers, and they were taking the Passover. And the Passover was looking back to their deliverance out of bondage in Egypt when the blood of the lamb in the shape of a cross, the angel of death would pass over and they escaped. So they were always looking back to their deliverance out of Egypt. And then the Lord lets them know, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for many for the remission of sins. He also says, this is my body which is broken for you. So communion is for believers. Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So this is an act of worship. It's looking back to the cross of Calvary and we do this in remembrance of the greatest act of love in all of human history. So they're gonna pass out the elements in a moment. I want you to hold on to them. Here's three things I'd like for you to do. He says, look, look back, remember the cross of Calvary, thank the Lord for his death on the cross. Look within. May this be a time where you examine your own heart before God. This may be a time of confession if it needs to be. And then also look forward, because Jesus said, the next time I do this, I will do this with you in heaven. There's a day coming when we will take communion in heaven. But before we do that, I want to make sure that if somebody is here that doesn't know the Lord, that wants to take communion, can do that. And here's how that happens. The Bible says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, 
you will be saved. He says, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. If you're here today and you've never fully surrendered your life to the Lord and the Holy Spirit has been ministering to you and you recognize, you know what, I am a sinner and I, I don't just want him to be my Savior, but I want him to be my Lord. I'm ready to surrender my life to him. If that's you today, I'm going to ask you to confess him before men by doing something really simple, by raising your hand right where we are, and, I, and we will pray with you. And if you do that, the Bible tells us, when you do that, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. You're born again. You're a new creation in Christ. Your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. And you can know, not hope, that when you close your eyes on earth, you will open them up in heaven. Anybody here at all, raise your hand where you are and I will pray with you. Don't leave here without the Lord. Anybody at all? Anybody at all? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you as we go now to this time of communion. Lord, may we do this in remembrance of you. May this truly be a time of reflection, time of looking back to the cross, time of examining our own hearts, time of remembering the greatest act of love in all of human history. Lord, we ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray and all God's people said...